talk about a road trip. Porter Fox spent months exploring the borderline of the U.S. and Canada from Atlantic to Pacific. Often you had to look closely to tell which side you were on. Really the only indication is that when you go through a town, there's Canadian flags uh, flying on one side and American flags flying on the other. Coming up, he tells us what he found along 4,000 miles of the longest national border in the world. There's a lot you can explore within a couple hours of San Francisco. Kimberly Lovato shares some of her favorite day trips, like the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. It's so quintessentially California to me with the wooden boardwalk and the old wooden roller coaster. And Becky Lomax reminds us why America's national parks are always worth another visit. It's amazing to see the wildlife, to watch wild animals out doing their wild thing. <laughs> Let's get out there in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're heading for the border on today's Travel with Rick Steves, the Canadian border. While there have been political strains recently, it's still the longest peaceful national border in the world. Porter Fox found that the border is actually not always so easy to identify, especially when it runs through lakes and rivers that keep flowing and changing. Yet a trip along the border can illustrate the westward pull of both nations and what it means to have a good neighbor. Porter Fox joins us for a closer look at the Northland in just a bit. We'll also check back with Kimberly Lovato of 100 Things to Do in San Francisco Before You Die. We'll consider some of the great day trips you can enjoy within easy reach of the city. Let's open today's Travel with Rick Steves, looking at some of the memorable experiences you can enjoy in America's national parks. Writer and photographer Becky Lomax is the daughter of a national park ranger. She was raised in Mount Rainier and Olympic National Parks, and now she lives next to Glacier National Park. She's written a detailed guide to all 59 of the USA National Parks, published by Moon. Becky, welcome back. Thank you. You've written a book. It's a 700-page guidebook covering the national parks. Let's just take a blitz around the country and talk about some of the most unforgettable experiences that you could have. And I'm just going to, I just was paging through your book. I'll just mention them, and you can describe them for us, and okay. then we can kind of put our travel dreams into action here. <laughs> yeah. uh, you talk about watching the ice Cav and Glacier Bay. Correct. Calving, is that what that's called? Yes. These are tidewater glaciers, glaciers that come down and touch the water. Okay. And then as the glacier is pushing the ice down, it breaks off. That's the calving. Okay. And then you get these icebergs floating out there. The way to go see them is via a cruise boat. So you take a cruise. You take and, a cruise. And then you don't want to get too close because uh, no. when I was there, they made a big point of it. Don't be stupid and get too close with your right. little boat because a freakishly big piece of ice can break off, right. create a little tidal wave. Exactly. And you could be in the cold water. Exactly. And you can also do, there's kayak tours that go up to see them and so forth. So that's, that's Glacier one Bay. Thing. Yeah, okay. Glacier Bay National Park. Um, how about oh, the famous one, going to Yellowstone and, and watching Old Faithful? That's absolutely wonderful. Now, the but guys I are had, Old Faithful. Is it still faithful? Yeah, it's about 90 minutes. I'm heading in this winter. It's the best time to go because in summer you'll be watching Old Faithful erupt with, you know, several yeah. thousand other people. you got to wait 90 in minutes? Win yes. And in winter, you go in oh. and you might be one of 20 people oh, watching great. it. Yeah, now, it's I was awesome. just in Iceland and there's a place called Geyser. Uh huh. And it's where the word geyser came from. Oh, fun. The geyser there goes every three or four minutes. Okay. So and I got a chance to one. kind of study it. 
and you don't want to blink because if you've waited for, uh, <laughs> you know, if you've waited for uh, what eighty nine minutes and all, yeah. you, you pause or you look around and then Old Faithful goes, you got to wait another eighty nine minutes. Right. So I learned at Geyser in Iceland that the water kind of billows up. Yes. And then it blows. So you look at the water, and if it starts to billow up, it's ready to burp. Yes, yeah, so there's a little pre-action That's that right. happens. Have you noticed that at Old Oh, yes, at Old with Faithful. Old Faithful, yeah. And it usually gets the crowd all ramped up with, oh, it's happening, it's happening, yeah. oh, and then it kind of backs off a little bit. Then then, and then go. when it blows, all you hear to these ooh-ahs go all the way around. In your book, you talk about wildflowers in Death Valley. That just looks beautiful. When Death Valley gets the right moisture, that's when this will happen. Because people say a common misperception is a desert is just a, a vast nothingness <laughs> with no life. Just but sand. there's so much life hiding oh, in a desert. So much. And when you get those right conditions, all of a sudden it's instant it bouquet. Pops. Okay, so wildflowers, what month is that? March, usually. In, in early spring. There. Yes. Early now, spring. you talked also about the longest cave system in the world and crawling through that at Mammoth Cave. Mammoth Cave, yes. What That's do you do the in big... there? What is it like? Well, is it, you, you take cave tours. Is it claustrophobic? <laughs> If you are claustrophobic, if you are claustrophobic <laughs> I guess that's a good answer to that, right? So, but that that would be one of the highlights in your yes. mind. Yes, I've long dreamt about rafting down the Grand Canyon, mm-hmm. and you explained that it's over two hundred miles long. A lot of people raft a little bit of it, and then they have a quick exit. Other people do the whole thing, but that takes a lot of time. Usually, twenty-one days if you do the full trip without. A motor on the end. So you've got the idea mm-hmm. to take three weeks to raft the whole thing, or you can boat the whole thing with a motor. What's the pros and cons of doing it the traditional way without a motor or just motoring through? I would think you have to debate, do I want to really raft and just do part of it if I've only got a week, or right. do I want to do the whole thing quickly with a motor? What do you think? Doing it with a motor, those boats are really big. You'll hit the rapids differently than you will if you're in a small dory or a small raft. If you're into the thrills, you'll get much more bang for your buck on the smaller. Okay. You're more intimate with the the, the rapids. Yes. Is it more demanding physically? Is it more dangerous? Is it less enjoyable that way for some people? Yeah. If you're you're a tenderfoot, you might find it easier to take the motorboat. Exactly. You can still uh, drag your toes in the water and have some experience. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you'll still see the beautiful cliffs and everything. One of the most beautiful things you talk about in your guidebook is the rainforest in the whole river in Olympic National Park. Tell us a little bit about that experience. You know, it's a work of art over there. (laughs) It really is. You've got these ancient trees, beautiful cedars, maples, and they're all just dripping with moss and ferns all over. And it's not a tropical rainforest, because most rainforests are tropical. This is one of the only temperate rainforests. Correct. It looks like someplace where trolls and things should be, you know, Lord of the Rings-like. it does look like that. And they do a great job of teaching when you go there. Yes. Interpretive walks. Interpretive. That was the word. Yeah. Yeah. Hall of Mosses is a great one. You can go take that interpretive walk. So if you're interested in trees, of course, you want to see the big ones in California. Where would you go for your big tree thrills in California? Big tree thrills would be in the redwoods and seeing those there. That would be Sequoia and Kings And, and Sequoia Kings, yep. And the biggest tree of all? Is Sequoia. And that's a very easy visit for anybody. That's basically a road trip, isn't it? You just have short walks back to the trees. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Becky Lomax. Her book is USA National Parks, a complete guide to all 59 parks. And we're just blitzing through some of her favorite parks, some of her favorite experiences, and one that I think you can just feel your enthusiasm for parks when you read this book. 
Hiking the Narrows in Zion. What's that <laughs> like? That looks so cool. Well, you got to first want to get your feet wet. Yeah. Do you wear you're, boots or do you just get all, you wear tennis shoes and just get all wet? Uh, your feet can get a little cut up on the rocks. Okay. So you're better off if you can actually rent some. Serious boots. Yeah. Not serious boots, but they're, they're river shoes made for walking. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And so basically you're walking right up the water and the cliffs are right here. Um, so the water is and, below your knees. Generally, and you want the time is it of a long, season you a want long to do walk? It. Well, yeah, it can be. You can make it quite long, or you can just go like up what, a, a mile. Couple of miles? You can do a couple you, miles. Oh yeah, yeah so you it's can a just long... do a shorty and turn around and come back. I've done the same thing in Sicily, and it was an amazing experience. Yeah, so, well, it's uh, so different. That would be hike the narrows in Zion, and it, it's like in those old movies. If you didn't want the bad guys following you, you cannot have <laughs> tracks because you walk up the river. <laughs> Exactly. How narrow is are the cliffs? Because it sounds just like a deer could jump from one to the other almost. <laughs> you know, in some places, those cliffs do narrow in quite a just bit. Just a couple meters across. Yes. And then you talk, and this is great for looking at pre-Columbian civilizations. You tour the ancient cliff dwellings in Mesa Verde. Those are amazing. Totally amazing. People don't appreciate what was going on before Columbus discovered America, and not just a few generations, way before. The fact that they survived and built their livelihoods in these cliff palaces, in the sides of cliffs, and they go down and climb in there and build. So a lot of people underappreciate pre-Columbian civilizations, and some of these parks are nothing but nature, but others are a celebration of, 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 history. of history. What are some other examples in the parks where you can really celebrate the civilizations that were here before the arrival of Europeans? You know, a lot of the parks are trying to do more with bringing that to light, but I mentioned Glacier Bay. Aren't there prehistoric petroglyphs in the southwest? Yeah, in several of the parks there, like Canyonlands and Arches, they've got petroglyphs. And then a highlight for anybody is watching fireflies. A great Smokies National Park. Yeah, yeah that, there's now that's just a sink. short period of time. You got to be there usually in June, and you got to get a permit. And they're called synchronous fireflies because they all light up at the same time. Oh, it sounds so much fun! This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Becky Lomax about USA National Parks, and that's the name of her book. You talk about something called architecture. The, the, <laughs> the great lodges in these parks, and one of my favorite national park experiences was in the Paradise uh, Lodge at Mount Rainier. Yeah. And this was, I understand, a work project during the Great Depression. Uh, are there, you know, big fireplaces and this old school woody charm and great base to hike from? Are there other park lodges that become part of the joy of the experience? Yeah, Yellowstone's Old Faithful Inn, mm -hmm. Glacier Park's Many Glacier Hotel, built by the railroad instead of a CCC project. Yosemite but, has some nice places. Yes, think, the yeah. Awani there. So you might be wise, and I'm sure in your guidebook you cover accommodations, you yes. might be wise to make reservations in advance if you want to stay in something other than a forgettable motel. You need to make reservations a year to 13 months in advance for most Is of them. Is that right? Yes. Wow. These now, are plan ahead. <laughs> let's talk also about eating, because I find food tastes better when you're in a park. <laughs> I don't know outside. why, but when you're, I mean, <laughs> Spam and crackers on top of a mountain is gourmet. It's like, absolutely. What's your favorite eating experience? What do you look forward to when you're uh, hiking and enjoying nature? You know, my favorite when I'm out hiking and so forth, it's jerkies and it's nuts. Rather than sitting down and eating some big old sandwich, right. I just like being able to pop stuff in my mouth all day long. So you pack with that in mind. I do. And then chocolate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> See, I, I'm a sort of an, a picnic aficionado, and I like to augment the experience by creating a great setting. Oh, So I'm thinking yeah. of a bluff or a peak, and then I crack open whatever I've got. That's where you just marvel at, I didn't know crackers and spam could taste so good. <laughs> it's just an amazing... And that's the beautiful thing about nature. You get immersed in nature and you realize different things are, are more important than you realize and yeah. different things are less important than you realize. Absolutely. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Becky Lomax. Her book is USA National Parks. <laughs> Becky, so clearly, parks connect us with nature. And let's say you could you had a friend who'd never been out of the city, somebody who never marveled at that mossy carpeting of trees we talked about in the whole River Valley in the Olympic National Park. What National Park experience would you share with this person who's never been out of the city? I would want them to see wildlife, to take them to something like Yellowstone or Theodore Roosevelt National Park or Everglades. It's amazing to watch wild animals out doing their wild thing. <laughs> As, and, and where we are the visitor. Exactly. Becky Lomax, thanks so much for inspiring us to enjoy America's best idea, the national parks. Thank you. You can hear our earlier National Parks interview with Becky Lomax in our radio archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. She opens up program number 560 from April 2019. Her website is beckylomax.com. There's thousands of miles of wilderness and a whole lot more you can explore along the border between Canada and the United States. Porter Fox reveals what he found next on Travel with Rick Steves. What lies over the U.S. border in Canada has never seemed very foreign to me. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. I grew up loving the view of the Peace Arch when we'd drive up from Seattle to visit relatives in Vancouver. It celebrates the longest and friendliest border in the world. Porter Fox grew up at the other end of the border, in Maine. He's recently explored the entire length of it to see what it tells us about our two nations. Porter describes what he calls America's Forgotten Border in his book, Northland. Porter, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It is kind of a forgotten border. I mean, forgotten in the sense that we sort of take it for granted. And nowadays, uh, it's getting a little more attention, as uh, many people in our nation here are interested in tightening up border security. Just how long is this border? And is it actually the longest in the world? It sure is. It's If you include the border up in Alaska as well, it's close to 5,500 miles, uh, which is the longest international border in the world. You know, even the lower 48 border contains the longest straight border in the world along the 49th parallel. Hmm. It takes off from Lake of the Woods in Minnesota and ends up in Bellingham, Washington. It's more than twice as long as our southern border, and yet our southern border seems to get all the headlines. And not only that, it gets all of the funding from Congress and, and has many times more border agents, close to uh, 19,000 at this point, compared to the northern borders, uh, just over 2,000. Hmm to guard a line that's, you know, well, more than twice as long. I would, so, think, I would think part of that is just uh, the economic reality. Canadians have about the same per capita income as we do here in the United States, whereas there's a tenfold difference in the average wealth per person in the United States compared to south of the border. It's true. And, and there's, a, there's a lot more illegal immigrants trying to cross the border in the south However, most of the um, entries come through ports of entry, mm -hmm. checkpoints um, hidden in vehicles and mm -hmm. with false documents and whatnot. Well, it's a lot of miles to protect either way on the north and the south. 
when you're looking at the border in the north, you've traveled the whole thing. Can you actually see it? I know in the east it's mostly water. Is it a physical border? What do you see when you see the border? I mean, I call it the forgotten border because you, it's very hard to find the border in the north. I traveled most of it, and in the east, a lot of it by canoe. It's in very remote parts of, of Maine, uh, upstate New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, then shoots across the Great Lakes for the five Great Lakes. And, you know, in Maine anyway, you know, I spent weeks on those rivers, and there literally are no monuments, there's no line. There's no signs that say, hey, don't cross here. The, mm. Really, the only indication is that when you go through a town, there's Canadian flags uh, flying on one side and American flags flying on the other. But for most of it, it just looks like a, a backcountry river and backcountry mm -hmm. woods. You wrote about in Montana, there's the cut, which is a visible line of deforestation. Does that track the border? It sure does, and it's, uh, it goes across the border. There's parts um, where it crosses the the 45th through uh, Vermont and New Hampshire and New York. Um, therefore, any forested section of the border has a 20-foot-wide cut on it. Oh, it does, um, a 20-foot-wide cut. 20-foot-wide, yeah. We're back in the 1800s. These, these poor timber guys had to go through with um, axes and chop down trees for oh, as close to 1,500 miles of forested border. Was that just like neighbors stake out where their fence goes so there's no question? I mean, w was there physically a command Pretty from much. Washington, D.C. to say, we need a 20-foot cut so we know where the border is? That's exactly what it was. The International Border Commission was developed, and they said, well, to mark it through the forest, this mm -hmm. is what we're going to do. Okay. Well, way back when, they didn't even know where the border went. Surveying techniques were very different. Mm -hmm. It was marked several times and incorrectly several times, and even now... The border strays up to 900 feet north or south of where oh, the from line that actually original should cut. be. Yeah. Now, it is yeah. interesting. You mentioned a lot of the border in the east is uh, waterways. The technical border will jig and jag depending on where how deep the water is because I guess the understanding is the deepest point in the lake or the river will be the border. Yeah, the deep water mark is officially the border, and that's shifting constantly in lakes and rivers. And huh. so that's partly why they don't mark it, but not marking it and having it move makes it really <laughs> difficult for fishermen and, yeah, and freighters on the Great Lakes and, and just people going out to um, recreationally uh, canoeing and camping. You, you really don't know where you are half the time you're out there. So there's lots of times when somebody don't, they don't know if they're in Canada or the United States. Now, you mentioned the longest straight line in the world along the 49th parallel. That is quite remarkable to think of that long of a stretch where it's just somebody said, well, that's the deal. Okay, you're Canada, we're America. Talk about the anomalies around there. I know north of Seattle, you've got Point Roberts with just a, a little tip of land that's connected with Canada, but it happens to protrude south of the 49th parallel, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the straight border is very problematic. There are not many around the world. That's partly why this one is so unique. It's not really a great idea to just kind of snap a chalk line across the map and say, mm -hmm. all right, here's where this goes. It split uh, Native American tribes in half. It splits towns in half, mountain ranges in half. It's very problematic where it splits a watershed in half and rivers start in Canada and flow into the U.S. and go back into Canada with farms all around that are drawing from that stream and, and water rights are extremely complicated and are still fought over today. So, it, you know, it was done in a very stressful time when James Polk was president. And 
They were trying to figure out Oregon Territory and how to split it up. And after jointly living there for around 100 years, they finally said, listen, we have to finish this border here. Polk was mm. going for a 54-40 or fight. You might remember, oh, I the, remember that. the slogan in 54. Well, gosh, that's up near Alaska. That's, that's the border that the U.S. was fighting for. And, and um, British Canada was happy to say, OK, let's just <laughs> settle on the 49th. Right. And simultaneously, the Mexican border and, uh, you know, the war down there was kind of raging. And it was just too much. So let's just time. get this thing done. And they consequently, said, there's, there's towns yeah. that are split by the border. Uh, you mentioned towns in Maine that are part in Maine and part in Quebec. There's towns that are split by the border. There's backyards that are split. There's a pulp factory in Mattawamkeag, Maine that's split in half. There's, there, oh, you there talked are... about the tavern where you during Prohibition you could go in from America and you could uh, sit in the back of the room and drink in Canada. There were taverns <laughs> built on the border during Prohibition for that Perfect. purpose. There were taverns built on the river on a barge, and they would float the barge over to the American shore, pick up people. They'd float it back over to the Canadian shore. They'd party all night, and then they'd go back and drop them off in the wee hours something. of the morning. We're traveling along the 4,000-mile border between the lower 48 and Canada right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is travel writer Porter Fox. On several trips over three years, Porter made his way from Maine all the way to Washington State following the border. His book is called Northland, a 4,000-mile journey along America's forgotten border, and it tells of his adventures and the people he met along the way. It's interesting that you talk about the border was ignoring tribal land, it was ignoring uh, water basins and so on, and, and that can cause untold problems. It's remarkable we've managed as long as we have without real conflict because of that. My feeling when I travel is when you reach a border, it feels like a kind of no-man's land between two tribes. And we don't really have that with our border, do we? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you get real close to that northern border. I, I did find a no-man's land. I, I found a place where American developers and businesses and whatnot kind of didn't see as much opportunity there because they had to stop at the border at a certain point. In Canada, it's a little bit different. 90% of the Canadian population lives within 100 miles of their southern border. 10% of the American population lives within 100 miles of the northern border. And most of that is in um, Detroit and Bellingham and other border cities. Mm -hmm. So it's very, on the American side anyway, it kind of is a no man's land. And what I found, who's interesting, is uh, covering a lot of travel. I've kind of gone against the grain and, and tried to find places that people did not go and see what that's like. I, I find mm -hmm. that's a, a really unique experience. And this whole journey was like that. It was forgotten towns and forgotten, you know, million acre wildernesses that really saw very few people in, in Maine and Minnesota's Boundary Waters, Glacier National Park. It was just these huge swaths of wilderness and kind of old world living that uh, America really had forgotten mm. and had been left very pristine. Well, let's take this journey, Porter, because it sounds fascinating. And give us an overview. You started in Maine and went to Washington State. How did you do the journey? Uh, I did it in separate trips, and I started in uh, West Quadihad in Maine, the easternmost point of the continental U.S. I took a canoe and went up the St. Croix River, which really marks kind of the first couple hundred miles of the U.S.-Canada border. Spent the night in these backcountry campsites, sometimes in Canada, sometimes in Maine. Sometimes I didn't know where I was. 
There's also no cell service on the border, uh, so you, your maps don't work quite as Was well. Was that right? Your... So if you are traveling along the border, it sort of is a no-man's land between uh, two different countries' cell services? It truly is. You you lose service with your American provider, and sometimes the Canadian provider picks up, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but I had no maps. I had no GPS that first stint through Maine, and I grew up in Maine. And, man, I, I never saw backcountry like this. I mean, it was truly pitch black dart, hmm. you know, no light pollution at night, no sound, no people. Wow. Now, you're in a 16-foot canoe, and it's October, right? And, and you, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's it not a very cold. nice time to get started on a long journey. Not only did it get cold, there was a cold snap when I took off, and um, it was early, mid-October, and they got their first frost of the year, and it was, uh, you're in a canoe. you know, lakes... Yeah, I'm in a canoe and, and it's starting to ice up and wow, it was uh, it just made everything a little bit more more intense, but after that canoe trip, I uh, came back home and rode up that section of the journey and the next next trip I did, I took um I was a passenger on a 740-foot freighter that left from Montreal and followed the border across four of the Great Lakes and left me off in Thunder Bay up in um Ontario. I don't know, a couple hundred miles north of Duluth, Minnesota. That was a freighter? That was a bulker, yeah. It was, it was carrying iron ore out uh, Did they have a few rooms for travelers that they rented? Well, what they have is they have rooms for the crew. They had an owner's suite that I luckily was assigned to. And um, they take passengers. The, the lakes are interesting. The um, ocean freighters actually will rent rooms, and you can purchase a 24-day passage to Indonesia if you want. Because of security on the lake since 9-11, it's been very tight. They don't really do that, but they do have rooms for family, for friends, for mm -hmm. owners, investors. I told them about my project. They said, hey, that sounds interesting. We'd love to offer you passage. And this was through the, what you call the Sweetwater Seas, the body of uh, lakes and canals and water from a river from New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, into the Great Lakes? Exactly. And I, and I was following the kind of adventures of Samuel de Champlain, who started right. near West Quaddy Head. That's really where his, the first French outpost in the New World was. And then he went up the St. Lawrence and found his way into the Great Lakes. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Porter Fox. He writes about his discoveries along the friendliest border in the world in his book, Northland, a 4,000-mile journey along America's forgotten border. It's now out in paperback. Porter's also the editor of the online literary travel magazine called Nowhere. His website is porterfox.com. What's it like to actually sail as sort of as a trip through the, the Great Lakes? It is very slow. It's very long. <laughs> it really feels like you're on an ocean when you look out the bridge window. You can't see land anywhere. It's just all water all around you. You know, I grew up sailing off the coast of Maine. I was used to that, but certainly not used to that in the middle of North America. It was truly stunning, and it was really easy to see how Champlain would have thought that he had discovered the Northwest Passage to China mm. that he was looking for. It certainly looked like the shore of an ocean when you enter Lake Ontario and, and the same for every other lake. But of course, you know, at the edge of every lake, he'd kneel down and taste the water and Realized there was no salt in it, and it was sweet water indeed. Oh, that's where you get the sweet water seas. So exactly, and I can just see him going, "Is it salty yet?" Oh, damn it! Oh, he was so pissed. I'm sure. Okay, well, you survived that, and then came the boundary waters between Minnesota's Northlands and Ontario. 
Yeah, and pretty close to Thunder Bay, the uh, kind of beginning of the Boundary Waters uh, starts at the Pigeon River and goes up into northern Minnesota and, and a chain of lakes and rivers that goes right along the border all the way to Lake of the Woods and uh, the beginning of the mm-hmm. Northern Plains. I did the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, which is a million-acre wilderness area that uh, was a keystone of the uh, Wilderness Act in the U.S. and is one of the most pristine and, and most protected wildernesses in the U.S. You can't take any kind of mechanized craft in there. You can't even Mm. take a paddle boat into these lakes and rivers. You can't fly an airplane below 3,000 feet over this region. It is extremely pristine lake country and deep, deep forest. And uh, You wrote very interestingly, you wrote, if you're not on the water, you're in the woods. (laughs) Yeah, there's not much in between. And so we would paddle from one lake to the next, and then we would portage, you know, put the canoe on our shoulders and portage mm. into the next one. We had a terrific guide who had been an Arctic explorer and and really knew the history of, of the area very well. And we just paddled along the border for days. It was it was really stunning. And that was kind of the end of the, the water section of the border and of the first third of it. And, and from there... I hit the road to um, follow the, kind of cross the northern plains. And as I was crossing them, I heard on the radio about the Standing Rock protests and um, had read about the Sioux Nation as this terrific Northland tribe for hundreds of years. And and so the next section was really focused on that history. And and this and, was the um, demonstrations against the Dakota Access Pipeline, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah near Cannonball, uh, North Dakota. And um, there's some huge Indian reservations along the that border area, isn't there? Oh, there's huge. Yeah, many, and a dozen are split by the border from east to west. When I was in Maine, I was on the Passamaquoddy Reservation that's split in half. Yeah, I spoke to the Sioux, I spoke to the Blackfeet, I spoke to the Lummi, and what are your what are your memories from just traveling in the reservations? That's a lot of miles along the border. It's very destitute, and it's not very populated. Destitute Uh, meaning very sad economies. uh, Very poor, yeah. Mm -hmm. Not spiritually, spiritually incredibly rich and powerful, Mm -hmm. and very independent and really hopeful. The people that I spoke with didn't like to be characterized as destitute at all. I said, well, this is, you know, this is kind of the reality of where we are. But Mm -hmm. they've really been dealt a bad hand by Washington, D.C. for the last couple hundred years, literally having treaties and and deals promised to them just pulled out from under their feet time and Mm -hmm. again. And then the same thing happened at, at Standing Rock. As far as the Constitution goes, it was illegal what happened, and the Mm. oil companies prevailed. What I saw and what my takeaway was was this incredible sense of hope and the way that their spirit just could not be defeated. They were not going to be knocked down by um, this terrible decision that the judge handed down. They just kept going and and honestly splintered off to every corner of North America and are fighting this fight Mm. against the big oil companies and other pipelines and the tar sands oil fields and and, um, coal ports out in uh, the coast of Washington. And and so that movement has really just begun, which, you know, in the face of that defeat at Standing Rock was actually a very inspiring moment. And again, diving into the history of it and and seeing this massive territory that the mm-hmm. Sioux Nation controlled really quite efficiently and well, it makes up today one-fifth of the continental United States. And, and that was the territory that they, you know, at the time 
traded away for peace. That is something. It was a very advanced tribe, as were yeah. as were many tribes in, in North America, uh-huh. you know, major cities in the Midwest and, and Native American civilizations. But of course, that doesn't make it right. into the history books. Porter Fox takes us into the prairies and mountains of the big country as he shadows the 49th parallel along U.S. 2 from Montana to Washington State. That's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Then we head south for some of the great day trips you can take within easy reach of San Francisco. Porter Fox is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Porter details his adventures along the U.S.-Canadian border in his latest book, Northland. He's also the editor of the online literary travel magazine called Nowhere. His website is porterfox.com. So, Porter, take us down the final section of your journey, the medicine line, following U.S. Route 2 from Montana all the way to Washington. Yeah, so the medicine line is is the 49th parallel that just shoots straight out to the Pacific. And um, I drove that section and kind of wandered uh, back and forth from the border down into the Great Plains and then into uh, eventually uh, through Idaho and eastern Washington and up into the Cascades. And, um, you know, really, that was one of my favorite parts of the trip. It was on the opposite side of the country from where I grew up. And to be able to recount how these border surveyors, you know, spent years traipsing across the plains and through the Cascades, climbing mountains that had never been climbed by a white man before and marking them and reading about, again, the Native American history there and the history of Oregon Territory and how, uh, you know, the British and Americans were living there at the same time by agreement, and then suddenly that ends. And and even before them, how Russian America stretched down the coast from Mm -hmm. Alaska down to San Francisco and to much of this territory. I mean, it was just, again, so much history that really builds from the eastern side of the border straight across to the west. Every hundred miles you cross, you're covering 20 years in time. It did grow that way from east to west. And so traveling it that way, I got to sort of bring the story up to present time in those in that last um, thousand miles of the trip. It kind of takes you through history of the westward movement of the United States? It does, yeah. yeah I, mean, I never I, thought about was, that, but it would be good to do this trip from Maine to Washington rather than the other way because it's in chronological order. Exactly, and that's that's why I did the trip in that direction, huh. and, and I was writing about the 1600s and the 1700s yeah, yeah. In, in Maine, and by the time I was out in Washington, I was writing about the 20th century. And, and you finish at another Indian reservation, a constant reminder that uh, there were people here before that border was drawn, and they're living on reservations in a lot of cases now, the Lummi Reservation. What was the end point of your 4,000-mile journey like? Um, you know, it was very serendipitous. When I was at Standing Rock, um, the one night there was a big presentation there. It was the Lummi tribe. And that was the one night they were there. They happened to be driving a totem pole that they had carved on Lummi Island, and they were driving it to a protest out east somewhere. Hmm. And so I, I just happened to be there, and I listened to them, and I was just enthralled with everything that they had to say. And when I got out to Washington and I kind of finished the trip, I was heading down towards Seattle, and I saw the the sign for Lummi Island and the Lummi Reservation. <laughs> I was like, oh, I got I got to go. And I went and I, I just by chance picked up a hitchhiker that studied um, painting and art with one of the totem pole carvers. Oh, that's great. And, 
It was just all wrapped up very trip. naturally. Good way to cap yeah. the trip. And we got to cap up this interview just very quickly. Uh, where did you have a wildlife encounter? Where did you meet uh, uh, some interesting animal? Oh, my gosh. I saw some bears running across the road in northern Maine. I had uh, I was probably on the canoe trip on the St. Croix in Maine where uh, at one point um, in the middle of the night I had an otter run between my feet into the river and, mm. and there were beavers that were coming up in a little eddy right next to um, to the campsite just watching me. Oh, they weren't afraid of me at all. It's like they'd never seen a, a person before. And then what kind of patriotism did you find on either side? Did you notice flags on one side more than the other? Were the facilities tidier on one side than the other? How could you draw any conclusions about Canada and America in that regard? I saw an equal number of flags on both sides of the border. And the closer to the border line I got, the, the more flags there were. Canadians are very proud of their side of the border, and, and Americans are as well. Um, they also get along very well and their businesses and families and church congregations are interlaced all the way across the northern border and they always have been right from day one. The northern border was never meant to be a hard border. It was never meant to have a wall or have um, you know military style checkpoints. Uh, there's been cooperation between these two countries since before these two countries even existed. But can that free flow survive in a post-9-11 world, or has that taken a hit, and does that hurt the communities? It's taken a big hit, and it has been inhibited greatly um, to the mm. tune of around $30 billion a year for American and Canadian businesses, and certainly for people and families and um, hospitals sitting on one side and their doctors live on the other side of the border. You, know, you have hour, two hour, three hour delays at that borderline um, that mm. really are not catching many criminals or illegal immigrants or, or smugglers because they all go through the backcountry. It's really just slowing down and, and really hurting that kind of international it relationship. It just seems like a tragedy. I mean, as Europe evolves, there's fewer and fewer border formalities and people can connect and share and, and team up. And in the United States, we have to have this security after 9-11, and there's a reality. There's 4,000 miles of potential community that now has. You write about how in the old days there was over 100 crossings that were unmanned at night. Absolutely. And, and I mean, to this day, Canada is our number two trading partner, our number one oil importer. I mean, it is an incredibly huge part of the U.S. economy. And, and again, the people living on both sides of the border are incredibly connected. And the way that Washington is uh, shaping policy for this northern border, it is nothing more than pure ignorance. They're unaware of what the local situation is there because they haven't studied it. They're mimicking what they do on the south mm -hmm. and they're putting it into the north. And they're two completely different borders that need completely different policies. Maybe rather than catering to the fears of their constituents, if they would take a couple of weeks and travel along that border, they'd have a better understanding. I think that's a great idea. Porter Fox, thanks <laughs> for sharing your experience in your book, Northland, a 4,000-mile journey along America's forgotten border. Happy travels. Thanks so much, Rick.
You'll find links to Porter Fox's Northland book and articles he's written about his adventures in the notes for this week's show. It's at ricksteves.com radio. There's a series of guidebooks called A Hundred Things to Do Before You Die, covering lots of different cities in the U.S., even smaller ones. A few weeks ago, one of their local authors helped us explore San Francisco beyond the usual tourist haunts. Another thing Bay Area locals like to do is to explore the beautiful scenery and attractions within easy reach of the city on a day trip or a weekend getaway. Kimberly Lovato returns to Travel with Rick Steves to look at some of the experiences you can have within easy reach of San Francisco. Kimberly, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So I'm just going to list some day trips that we'd consider visiting from San Francisco and, and get your take on them when we're, when we're looking to spice up our visit to that great city. If you're in San Francisco, uh, you always hear the word Sausalito. What about Sausalito? Sausalito is, is great because it's even less than a day trip. You could go there for coffee. You could go there for lunch. It's just about a 15-minute sail across from the ferry building. I happen to live in Sausalito now. I just moved from San Francisco. It's this uh, lovely town with restaurants and galleries and cafes along the water, and it's really wonderful, and you get a great view. So it's sort of trendy, and it's got seafood restaurants, and it's got nice houseboats, what, 400 houseboats. And near Sausalito, we've got the Muir Woods National Monument. Tell us about that. The Muir Woods National Monument is some of the oldest coastal redwoods you'll find, and it's also a very easy day trip, whether you're driving or you could take the ferry to Sausalito, and then there is a bus that goes there. Hmm. If you are driving, you, you need to make a parking reservation. So they do limit the number of people that are in the park via this parking reservation, but completely worth it. Get there early before the tour buses arrive, and it's it's impressive, these tall redwoods, and there are a few hiking trails through there, or you can just sit on a bench and take it all in. And I understand this has been actually protected for more than 100 years now. So, mm-hmm. And yes. we've got these giant redwoods and miles of trails through the forest and through the canyon. Yes, quite beautiful. Nice. Now that's to the north of San Francisco. To the south on the coast, we have Half Moon Bay. Yes, Half Moon Bay. My co-author, Jill Robinson, actually lives in Half Moon Bay, and she loves it down there. It's this quaint little town, and there are kayak companies and seafood restaurants. It's also well known for its uh, maverick surf competition with the gigantic waves that roll in Hmm. during the winter, I believe. And yeah, and it's not very far from San Francisco, and it's also a very easy day trip or go down for lunch. So if you want to watch the surfers, is that something that's all year long or, or just in certain seasons? I I do believe people surf there all year long, but this particular competition, Mavericks, Mm -hmm. is a certain time of year. And just for safety, I'll bet Mm. you have to stay back a little bit. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'll never forget. I had a beautiful vacation down there in a wonderful B&B. There's some great B&Bs in Half Moon Bay. There sure are. Now, if we're thinking about more seashore, we've got Point Reyes National Seashore. Mm -hmm. That's north of San Francisco as well. People love to go out there for recreation. I mean, there are miles and miles of, it's a protected seashore and miles and miles of trails to hike. And it's a great day, especially if you're active. It's beautiful photographs. And on a sunny day, I think it's one of the places that can't be beat in the Bay Area. With an iconic uh, lighthouse. Yeah. And a couple of small towns you can stop. I mean, Point Reyes Station has a few little great places to stop for coffee or pack up your picnic. We always hear about the San Andreas Fault. You can actually see that zone at Point Reyes. Oh, can you? Gosh. That's, that's something I don't, to, I didn't to know consider. That. Yeah. So there's Another lots reason of to go back. sort of a nature wonderland there. Definitely. Talk about Carmel by the Sea. Well, Carmel by the Sea is going to be a little bit of a longer trip from San Francisco, but that's okay. And it's also 
a gorgeous drive. Of course, it's connected to Monterey via the famous 17-mile drive and Pebble Beach, everyone's heard of. And Carmel-by-the-Sea is, yeah, it's a charming little town full of galleries and restaurants, lots of hotels. Yeah, it's a great way to spend a day, and it's probably about a two, two-and-a-half-hour drive from okay. San Francisco. And it seems like these beach towns, they a lot of them have a colonial sort of heritage. You've got the Carmel Mission there, and but then it's the it's sort of a haunt of artists and surfers these days, and in Carmel-by-the-Sea, also yes. birders. Yes, a lot. Of, well, there's a lot of nature trails down there, and it, it does feel quite wild along the coast, especially yeah. as you start to head south, you know, towards Big Sur and whatnot. It, it does start to get pretty wild. We're exploring some of the fun day trips you can enjoy within easy reach of San Francisco with Kimberly Lovato. She's co-author of 100 Things to Do in San Francisco Before You Die. Kimberly also received a gold medal from the Society of American Travel Writers for her culinary travel book about the Dordogne region in France. It's called Walnut Wine and Truffle Groves. Her website is KimberlyLovato.com. Now, when somebody's never been to San Francisco before, they're tempted to go up to Napa Valley. It must be the number one destination. Tell us about Napa Valley, and is it worth the, the trouble to go up there, and what are your tips to enjoy it? I absolutely recommend Napa Valley because it's not that far from the Golden Gate Bridge. It's about a 45-minute drive to the town of Napa, and something that I've seen, having lived on and off in San Francisco now since 1990, the town of Napa itself used to be kind of a drive-through town. You sort of gas up and go and then go visit wineries. But Napa, the town, is actually mm. quite hopping now with restaurants and great hotels. They have the Napa Valley Wine Train, which if you don't feel like driving, they have various tours now that mm. you can get on and off at different wineries. Oh, no, that's nice. So you can drink to your heart's content and get back <laughs> on the train. Yes, and then you have to eventually leave the train station. Oh, but there is a hotel oh, that's right true. next There's to the train right station. But the, but the train goes <laughs> so, from winery to winery? Yeah, there are various tours. There's dinner tours. There's quick stop at three. It depends on what wineries you want to stop at. The higher higher priced wineries, for lack of a better description, mm-hmm. will cost more. But it's, it's a lovely experience. It's very Orient Express, California style. And mm. a lot of them serve a meal on there as well. So, yeah, the Napa Valley Wine Train is doing a great job of mixing it up, allowing different whatever type of tour you want, you can experience. And yeah, you don't have to drive. And you know where to go. Someone else has made those decisions for you. Now, I've done wine tasting in a lot of different areas, but I've never done in Napa Valley. Just can you walk us through what what's the process? Do you make a reservation? Does it cost money? What kind of alternatives are there? And uh, what's it like to tour a winery in Napa Valley? Those are all good questions, and it, it depends is the answer. So Napa Valley, a lot of the wineries are reservation only, but only because they want to limit you know, the amount of people they want to be able to service you correctly and they don't want to be overrun with people and not be able to help people. So most, a lot of wineries will take reservations. Some you can walk in Mm -hmm. and there is often a tasting fee because they don't want people to just come in Mm -hmm. and and drink a bunch of wine and leave. But often that tasting fee is is waived if you buy a bottle of wine. So it works out in everyone's favor. There are some great wineries that you can go and spend a lovely day. I mean, Alpha Omega is one that comes to mind. They have this gorgeous patio with fountains that you can just sit out there all Mm. day if you Mm. want, which makes it very dangerous. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kimberly Lovato, and she, along with Jill Robinson, have written a book called 100 Things to Do in San Francisco Before You Die. And a lot of those things might be getting out of town and, and day tripping. Kimberly, when you go to the city by the bay, you might want to spend some time on the bay. What are some options to get out there and enjoy San Francisco Bay? 
Oh, yes. You cannot come to San Francisco and not get out. So first of all, our, our ferries are great. A lot of people do it anyway because they want to go to Alcatraz or Sausalito or Angel Island. And so you're, you're already on the ferry mm-hmm. and it has great views of the skyline, the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, the red and white fleet and the blue and gold fleet have highlight cruises like sunset cruises and cocktail mm. cruises. There's the rocket boat ride that's for the adrenaline thrill seekers, you know, mm-hmm. who want to go fast in mm. a speedboat. There are even kayaks. I mean, you can kayak on the bay if you're if you're strong and brave enough down by South Beach and AT&T Park. There's a city kayak company. Now, you live in Sausalito, and you mentioned that's just a 15-minute ferry ride away from, from the yeah, city center. Yeah, very easy. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then when you get to Sausalito, are there, can you rent boats or go out on the bay from Sausalito, or is that something you do from San Francisco? No, you can rent. There are kayak companies in, in Sausalito. Mm-hmm. There's walks. Most people come and walk along the water. It's got a great view back to mm-hmm. San Francisco. But sure, you can get on kayaks there. A lot of people rent bikes and, and bike over the bridge to, to Sausalito, if you can believe oh, it. That'd be a- it's a long one, but it's fun. And it's, you know, you see it all. You rent the bike down in about Fisherman's Wharf, and then you'd ride all the way over the bridge and down the hill into Sausalito. And it's a great way to see a lot. Can you put the on bike on wheels. the ferry and come back by the ferry? They used to do it that way, but now they've made it easier. These companies have parking in Sausalito now, and you Perfect. leave your bike there. And, oh, and yeah, you smart. can cab back, Uber back, or take the ferry back. Very nice. Now, a lot of people fly into Oakland, and they go straight into San Francisco. What would you want to do in Oakland? Is that worth a side trip from San Francisco? Oh, absolutely. And actually, I have a an author of 100 Things to Do in Oakland Before You Die, and she's covered it all. She lives over there. But yeah, Oakland's got a great booming restaurant scene now. I hear they have a great Chinatown. BART is an easy ride over to Oakland from San Francisco. A lot of people go over and head to the Berkeley campus as well. And that's all accessible yeah. by BART, so it's economic. All, all accessible. And you feel like a local riding on the BART, so that's cool. <laughs> yes. And finally, what about the Santa Cruz Beach Walk. So I think the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk is just something, it's so quintessentially California to me with the wooden boardwalk and the old wooden roller coaster and arcade games and they do summertime cinema on the sand and it's just a great, great retro feel to the place. Hmm. There's a lot of surfing goes on down there. There's a surf museum down there. Some great little hotels and retro motels that have been renovated. And it's a it's a great way to, to get a slice of old, old California. Sounds like a, a little bit like a Bay Area Venice, in like in Los Angeles. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. Yeah, I like that. And you have your Santa Monica Pier down there. Same type of feel, except I think Santa Cruz is, is much older. And a parade of people and fun-loving slices of life. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, and it's, it's quite nice down there, and the, the weather is often a little bit nicer than in uh, San Francisco in the summer. <laughs> the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. All right. Kimberly Lovato, author of 100 Things to Do in San Francisco Before You Die. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Rick. Sausalito in the summertime Seaside passion with a Monday vibe Ain't no better way to ease a worried mind Loving you in Sausalito in the summertime Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Catton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmara Hall. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. We had studio help this week from the Radio Foundation in New York and from Sports Byline USA in San Francisco. We had editing help this week from Sarah McCormick. There's more online at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. 
Europe through the back door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.